Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Here in New York City, where I am looking at my list of New Year's resolutions while simultaneously digesting the uh, political news that took place several hundred miles to my south this week in Washington, D.C. As you guys know, this is not a political podcast by any stretch of the imagination, but what went on this week was kind of bigger than all of us. It, It was somewhat historic And I'm still kind of processing what happened, as I'm sure many of you are as well. But life goes on, and poker goes on, and Phil Galfond, I'm sure most of you know who he is. He's a world-famous professional player. He's also the creator of runitonce.eu, which is a poker site that's also a training site, and just an all-around kind of terrific poker ambassador. He asked the poker community to share New Year's resolutions and it kind of inspired me. You know, I normally don't do New Year's resolutions. I like to set goals for the year and I'm not really sure what the difference is, (laughs) but I guess uh, a resolution is like, you know, this year I'd like to quit smoking and goals are more specific than that. So, What I'm trying to do this year is online volume. I wrote back to him, I I want to play 2,000 online tournaments, and I'm also going to spend 150 hours this year studying in between all of the uh, volume that I'm putting in. And I also wrote, I'm going to fold when the nittiest rock at the table raises. (laughs) Something that I've been catching myself not doing lately. You know, I don't need to pay to see it. If it's a guy who just would never, ever, 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 ever bluff raise the river, I can fold even a pretty strong hand to such a player. So uh, those are kind of my resolutions. I'm interested in hearing some of yours. You know, now that 2021 is off to such a spectacular start, let's hear what you guys want to do in poker. Now, let me give you a little bit of advice about this. It's more important and more effective to focus on your process and not your outcomes. Like, of course, we could all say, I want to win a million dollars. I want to win three gold bracelets. I want to, whatever, you know, whatever your goal could be. I mean, those are more like dreams or possible results of you following the process that you resolve to follow. So let's hear what that will be. You know, how many hours do you want to spend studying? How many videos do you want to watch? Uh, What holes in your game are you trying to plug? Like these are the kind of things that I'm looking for and I'd love for all of you to interact on Twitter at Clayton Comic. Let me know kind of where your head is at starting this new year. WSOP.com has announced that for those of us fortunate enough to be in or near New Jersey and Nevada, 
there's going to be a circuit event basically half the time this year. Every month they're going to have like a 12-day circuit series. And there's going to be some added money in the prize pools. There's going to be free rolls for the participants, uh, stuff like that. So it looks pretty good to me. It seems that WSOP.com is trying to make up for sins of the past, if you will. Uh, They're even doing some rake-free stuff, which, as you guys know, that is near and dear to my heart. I like free money, and I like rake-free tournaments, or at least if you're going to call something a player's appreciation, then show your appreciation by not charging us for the privilege, right? So uh, I'm not going to get into that again, I promise. So that's what's going on. You can kind of wipe the slate clean if you had a bad year last year, if you had a disappointing spreadsheet if you look back when all is said and done uh the the new year is kind of the time when we have that that hope now in recent years normally in january i would be gearing up for my annual trip to australia there are several comedy clubs in sydney melbourne and brisbane where i would perform and then i would also play in whatever tournaments i could squeeze in in Melbourne at the Aussie Millions. So obviously this year, with everything that's going on worldwide with the pandemic, we won't be going to <laughs> to Australia, right? So instead, I'm going to be focused on my online game. And here's what I want to commit to. I'm going to, I'm going to make these things happen. I'm going to play 2,000 online tournaments this year. And some of those will be on WSRP.com or Party Poker in New Jersey. But I think a lot of them will end up being on the sites that I'm actually able to access while in New York City. And we know what those are. So what I've learned from this unusual year of 2020, as we hear the police sirens out my window. I don't know if this microphone's picking that up or not, but it's pretty loud. Uh, What I've learned from 2020 is that the online game is even more different then number one, way different than it used to be when I used to be an online player back in the day. Uh, of course, that has changed a lot. And number two, it's different from the live game in other more subtle ways. Most notably to me, there's nowhere to hide. So in other words, if I'm playing in a live multi-table tournament in Las Vegas or Atlantic City or wherever else I may go, I can sometimes use my people skills to figure out what's going on at the table. You know, a lot of what I've developed over the years as a comedian is the ability to quote unquote read an audience, right? Well, in poker, I can sometimes figure out what's going on and then possibly camouflage whatever holes might exist in my game. Like it's okay if I don't three bet enough if I happen to be really good at figuring out who's bluffing on the river. I mean, being able to pick off a good percentage of the river bluffs that are attempted against me and likewise fold to most of the river value bets I face, you know, having that talent is going to make up for a lot of other fundamental holes in my game. So like if my push fold chart isn't perfectly memorized, for example, but I'm able to recoup a lot of those big blinds back on the all-important river decisions in most of the hands that I play in a live setting, uh, I can really hide that 
and it's not going to hurt me in the long run. But because the online game doesn't allow for any of those people skills or those reading abilities to come into play, it's really about the fundamentals. You know, you need to play a mathematical game in the online world. Now, it can vary a little bit. Like I looked at my numbers, I'm running uh, 2216, which I think is pretty good for a VPIP and preflop raise. Now, this is after 25,000 hands. We talked about my HUD stats uh, several months ago with Jason Smith, Snost and Lost Poker, who I'm hoping to get back on really soon. I know a lot of you guys are asking for me to get him back. Uh, well, he knows all about how to use Poker Tracker or Hold a Manager, whichever program you're into, and how to read those numbers and, and figure out what's going on. So we didn't have a big enough sample. I think we were at only like 8,000 or 10,000 hands when Jason and I spoke last. So now that I've basically tripled that, the numbers are a little clearer, and I'm pretty happy with what I see. You know, it's 2216 VPIP and preflop raise with a 9% 3-bet. So those are kind of the key numbers that we were looking at when Jason and I spoke, and he was saying I should try to get some of my numbers uh, tweaked a little bit, and it feels like all that's happening. Look, I'm never going to be a 12-8 kind of guy or an 11-7 guy. It's just not really in my nature. You know, I am a little bit more comfortable with risk than some of my nittier opponents, but I need to make sure that if I'm entering that many pots, I'm doing so with substantial enough aggression to make up for the fact that I'm playing more hands than my opponents. I mean, if these guys are all waiting for aces a lot, then my aggressiveness needs to make up for the fact that on average their hands will be stronger than mine. So all that to say, I'm happy with my HUD stats where they're at right now. I hope to continue to improve on them. I'd actually like to see if I can get that three bet uh, percentage up a little bit higher, closer to the 10% that Jason was targeting for me, given the number of hands that I play. Uh, so that would be great, but I don't really want to force it either. Like while I'm playing, I never want to be thinking about my HUD stats because that's just not the approach you should have to a hand of poker. But in the long run, this is kind of like a, a macro view. I would like to see that happen if I can. So I'm happy with where those numbers are, but my profitability online is nowhere near what it is live. So on average, my career earnings uh, lifetime over you know five or 600 live poker tournaments, my ROI is over 100%. I think it was 109% at the time when I was no longer allowed to play live poker anymore uh, at some point in March of 2020. Online, my ROI is barely above break even. It's at 6% ROI. So what that means is if I enter a $1,000 tournament in a real casino, I would expect to profit on average a little more than $1,000 the same exact $1,000 online is netting me about $60. That's just based on the last nine or 10 months. It's not really a big enough sample size, but that's where we're at right now. So, I mean, actually, I'm pretty happy just to be 
in the black for 2020 because I did play some pretty high buy-in events during the summer when I was playing in the World Series of Poker online. And uh, it was not profitable. I believe I lost about 50% of the money that I invested there. So that kind of put me in a hole for the year. And those tournaments were much bigger than the average buy-ins for the other tournaments I was playing throughout the year. So it took quite a while to kind of get back in black, if you will. And so I'm glad I was able to do that. But I'm hoping that now with a fresh, clean start and learning what I learned from all of the online hours that I put in last year, I can clean up some of the mistakes that I was making and come out swinging in 2021, giving myself a shot at being more profitable than 6% ROI. But again, those are the kind of things we can't actually control directly. All I can say is I've noticed what I'm doing wrong or the, the things that I do sometimes that get me into trouble. For example, calling when the nitty guy raises on the river. Like there's a 1% chance that he's bluffing. I should just go ahead and let him bluff if he's bluffing because just those calls are killing me. So that's kind of the big thing that I need to stop doing. If I identify a player as a nitty Rocky type, I'm just not going to give him action. Something I had been doing with a little too much regularity last year. So those are my thoughts heading into the new year. I'm looking forward to studying all the videos on TournamentPokerEdge.com, especially anything and everything by Andrew Brokus and Alex Fitzgerald. But I want to hear from you. You tell me what success looks like for you in 2021. Okay, I want to go over a couple of hands that I played in a, uh, a $15 tournament on ACR. Uh, this tournament has a $50,000 guaranteed prize pool, which for those who are used to playing in Nevada or New Jersey, <laughs> uh, that is a very, very large uh, prize pool to guarantee for just a $15 buy-in. There aren't rebuys and add-ons, but there is a very long, I believe a four or five hour re-entry period. And most of the players that enter the tournament early are willing to fire uh, as many $15 buy-ins as, as they need to to try to get where they want to be. So uh, similar to something we discussed on this podcast a few weeks ago, players not really caring how much rake they're wasting by re-entering tournaments, kind of treating that first few hours like a free-for-all and taking unnecessary risks, not considering how over time paying that rake repeatedly is going to affect the bottom line uh, at, over the course of a year or a decade or whatever the long run happens to be for you. So uh, this is very early on in the tournament. Now my strategy is I'm not willing to just get it all in and see if I can get a big stack early. As you know, I don't want to pay that rake again. So I would probably lean towards playing more of a standard freeze-out style early on. I want there to be 
a big stack to pot ratio where I can hopefully exploit my opponent's tendencies and allow my post-flop skill advantage to create an edge for me rather than just shove it in with ace-king against jacks for 300 big blinds and see who wins the, the huge coin flip to get the chip lead. So that's kind of my mentality, although uh, in the right situation against the right opponent, I'm more than willing to gamble it up, as you guys <laughs> certainly must know by now. So uh, early on, we're at a seven-handed table. We just lost our small blind, so there is no small blind in this hand. The blinds are 50 and 100 with a 12 ante, which I love. So there's 84 tournament chips worth of antes at this seven-handed table plus the small blind and big blind. So uh, under the gun player limps in. He's got about 11,000 behind. So he's you know we're all going to be deep stacked. This is quite early on in, in the event. Uh, in third position, the low jack, remember it's seven-handed table. So in the low jack, uh, a, a reasonable player makes it 388 with another 6,000 behind. It folds to me on the button with pocket trays, and I have about 9K in my stack. I believe in this tournament you start with 10K, by the way. Um, you know, I don't really want a three bet in this situation. The problem with doing that is the original raiser could raise again, and then I basically have to fold away all my equity with trays. I mean, we're not going to get this big of a stack all in. He's got about 6,000 behind. So we're not going to get that many chips in 60 big blinds with just a pair of trays. So I, I don't see any reason to go crazy here. Uh, I also don't think that folding is a very good play. And we're certainly deep enough to take a flop in position with this hand, hoping to flop a set, but also having a plan to uh, sometimes win pots where we don't. So yeah, I'm fine with just calling here. And that's what I choose to do. And the uh, big blind folds. Now I'm on the button. There's no small blind. So I call on the button. The big blind folds. And the original member, the under the gun player, had limped in. And he decides to call as well. So we're going to start estimating. Because, you know, remember he raised to 388. It's really negligible if we just kind of do some rounding here. There's about 1,300 in the pot. And the effective stack is the original raiser's. 6,000. So we're going to see a, a three-way flop in position with pocket trays. And the flop comes 10 of hearts, 10 of spades, tray of diamonds. So hero flops the uh, full house here, trays full of 10s. So uh, certainly an above average flop for us. The limper checks and the original razor bets 600 into 1300. Now, I could certainly raise here hoping that one or both of my opponents have strong enough hands to continue. Now, obviously, if somebody has a 10, ace 10, king 10, jack 10, they can't really fold even if I do raise. Uh, it's just, it's not, it's not going to happen. You're not going to see a bet fold here, and nor should you, because three tens, even if it is behind, which we know it is, is drawing live and... There's also the chance that I'm trying to bluff. Although, honestly, I have trouble figuring out what hands I would turn into a bluff on this super dry 
paired board. At least in theory, there should be some. So I decided to just go ahead and flat here. My goal is to figure out what the original razor is holding. He could certainly have an overpair, in which case raising is probably best. But the problem is I don't want to lose him when he's doing a continuation bet with something like ace-king, ace-queen, king-queen. All of those hands are likely to be in my opponent's pre-flop raising range. And if I do raise, those are the kinds of hands that I will lose. So I think it's better in this spot to go ahead and just lay back in the weeds and maybe the original limper will pull a trigger on some kind of play here. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see whether he calls or raises or folds. And I'd also like to see if some nice paint comes off on 4th Street because that would be more likely to give the original razor a pair to go with the tens that are on the board right now. So that's what I'm looking to do here. And so that's why I just call. And then the limper folds. So we're going to be heads up to the turn. And the pot now contains 2,500. Our opponent has about 5,500 behind. And the turn is the six of spades. So the board is now 10 of hearts, 10 of spades, tray of diamonds, six of spades. So it's possible that he may have picked up a flush draw with this card. Now he checks. All right, so we have a decision here. Obviously, we'd love to get some more chips into the middle. But what is our opponent's line so far telling us? Now, if he bets again here on the turn, I think I can get excited because he's likely to have a hand like aces or kings. Like, we want him to have those over pairs and for him to just hope that we don't have a 10. Little does he know we can even beat a 10. And that's how strong our hand is. But when he checks the turn, I think it's pretty clear that he will not have very much ace-ace, king-king in his range, especially given his stack size. Remember, he starts the hand with just over 60 big blinds. I think he should be looking to build the pot and build the pot. And if I have a 10, you know, that's just his bad luck. He'll probably go ahead and spend that $15 again to re-enter early in the tournament. So, uh, as I mentioned, the reason why I did that whole setup about how people approach this tournament is you don't really see a lot of players trying to protect their stacks. They try to go for value, and if they get coolered out, they just buy in again. So because that is the predominant strategy on the site and something I see over and over and over, it makes me inclined to think that when you don't see it, it's probably because the guy has nothing. He's probably got just two high cards, ace-king, ace-queen, hands like that, and he's basically giving up. For that reason, we can't bet here. We're going to lose our customer if we go for value in this spot versus this line. So I check behind, and I think that's the right play. And the river is the seven of diamonds. So 10, 10, tray, six, seven. And the flush did not come in. And again, villain checks. So there's 2,500 in the pot. Opponents got like 5,400 behind. So what do we want to do here? I mean, we're basically targeting the two overcard kind of hands. 
ace king, ace queen. That's what this appears to be. And so what should we do? Well, my move here might surprise you. And it's the reason why I selected this hand. Well, obviously we need to try to bet and get value for our hand. And I think that, you know, if you if you told me you want to make a bet of like 850, right? Like about a third of the pot and try to get a little value, especially given that this is a tournament and especially given that it's so early in the tournament that all of the chips we can accumulate right now are you know, a lot in terms of how many big blinds they are. But I decided to go full polarization here. Okay, I bet 2,500, a full pot bet, exactly the pot size, which is what I would do if I had floated the flop and then missed the turn. So if I had a hand like ace-queen myself, I may have played it this way. And then if I just didn't feel like I had enough showdown value, I could turn that hand into a bluff. Or even more so if I had something like queen-jack and decided to float the flop, maybe I had all kinds of backdoor straight and flush possibilities, and it was a pretty small flop bet. That all makes sense. You know, you can't always fold Queen Jack on 10-10 tray just for one small bet. It's too exploitable. So it's okay to go ahead and, and call once in a while and see what happens on 4th Street. So when, the, when I have those hands, I'm going to make a big polarizing bet, which is going to say I either have a 10 or better, or I have nothing. And if our opponent has what I think he has, he can beat all my nothing. And that, combined with the fact that most of these players are happy to splash around and just re-enter, I decided to go for the the home run here. And I I went for the full pot size bet. And my opponent called with ace-king offsuit. So, yeah, real good, like, pat myself on the back kind of hand guys, but that's not really what I'm <laughs> what I'm trying to do. It's not why I picked this one out. There's a logic behind polarizing yourself, right? So the bigger the bet we make, the more we should have a big hand and occasionally a very small hand, but nothing in between. So in other words, I wouldn't have made this play with a hand like pocket eights. Although perhaps I should now knowing that I can get action at least some of the time from ace-king offsuit. But you know, in the moment, I'm representing much bigger or much smaller than that. So I'm polarized, and I, we did get paid off in this spot, which was nice. It gave us a good stack um, heading into the later levels of the tournament. Not too long after this, when the blinds were 100-200 with a 44 ante, we got moved to a different table, and this table was eight-handed. Uh, it was folded to me in fourth position. At this point, I had 24000 behind, so I'm among the tournament chip leaders. Um, a couple of other things obviously went well after that flopped full house hand we just discussed. And, you know, I'm up there. I'm in the top 10 in chips. And this tournament gets something like 300 or 400 players. Uh, so in fourth position, which is the hijack at an eight-handed table, we have a Jack-9 offsuit, the Jack of Hearts, Nine of Spades. Uh, it's a pretty comfortable table. I feel like my skill edge is substantial at this table. I mean, there are some fairly aggressive players around me, but mostly I can sort of 
navigate and figure out what's going on for the most part. So it's a little bit loose, but I decided to go ahead and open the Jack 9 from the hijack. I make it 500, so 2.5x. And the cutoff folds, but the button clicks it back, <laughs> basically, and makes it 900. So he, he just a little more than a click back, which is just a very strange sizing for him. He's got uh, 18,000 behind. Uh, everyone folds all the way back to me. Now, what am I supposed to do with Jack-9 here? I mean, I'm getting this ridiculous price to call. Uh, the pot has about 1,900 in it. It cost me 400 more to call. I'm getting like four and three quarters to one. I don't think I can fold. It's just a question of whether we want to put the Jack-9 off into our four betting range, which I think a solver might say to do that occasionally. But I think given this tournament, this is usually going to be a pretty big hand here. When he three bets so small like that, just praying, begging for action, it's usually going to be ace king or aces, kings, and queens, maybe the occasional ace king, and not much else. From the player pool at large, that is what this will be. So I have to be careful if I flop just a pair of jacks, for example. I don't want to lose a ton of chips with top pair, but at the same time, I, I can't really fold for just 400 more. So yeah, I call and the plan is to kind of be cautious from here. I don't know this opponent very well. I haven't been at this table for very long. And we certainly haven't seen this tiny three bet before. Anyway, there's about 2,300 in the pot. And the flop is a good one. Queen, 10, 9, rainbow. Queen of clubs, 10 of hearts, 9 of diamonds. Hero holding, jack of hearts, 9 of spades. So we've got bottom pair and an open-ended straight draw. So this is a, a very good flop, better than a top pair type of flop as far as I'm concerned because it's really about the value of being able to improve and how much equity I will have against the hands that my opponent is most likely to hold, hands like pocket aces, pocket kings. So I check and our opponent bets 900, which remember that was the same amount to which he had raised pre-flop. And we just go ahead and call here. You can get fancy if you want to. You can do a check raise here if you want. But, the, you know, the problem with that is sometimes he's going to have three queens. And when he does, he's going to play them very, very aggressively if he gets check raised. And then we're going to be priced in. So basically we'll be building too big of a pot from out of position with a hand that we know is second best for sure at that point, but that we can't fold because we have too much equity or at least perceived equity. Note that we would have less equity against pocket kings, pocket queens than we would against pocket aces. So I go ahead and call here. And now with 4,100 in the pot, the turn comes the king of diamonds. So it, we now have a straight we still can't go too crazy here because we don't have the nuts, but we can fade that possibility given that we block it with our jack of hearts. And mostly we are elated to see this card. And now we hope that our opponent has pocket kings. So we check again and 
He fires again, 1,500. I was a little surprised to see this bet. I think a lot of his pocket aces, ace-king type of hands would probably slow down. So when this happened, I thought he was more likely to have flopped a set or maybe turned a set with pocket kings. So he bets 1,500 into the 4,100 pot, which is a small bet for sure. And probably the play here is for me to check raise because he's never folding when he has a set. And if he's got ace-jack, I'm just about to lose a ton of chips. That's fine. Uh, It just feels like I should check raise this and try to get as many chips into the middle as I can. If I can put him on a set here, then check raising even pretty big is likely to get action because our opponent has 10 outs. And a lot of players just can't fold a 10-out draw for any amount. So he could bet 1500 and I could have raised it to 11000 and probably gotten action. Uh, my problem is he could still just have pocket aces or ace-king. And in that case, I would lose him with such a raise. So I think all things considered, I should be check-raising here. But in this hand, as played, I called, and I think that was uh, not my best play. So now with 7,100 in the pot, the river comes, the 10 of clubs, pairs the board for the final board of queen, 10, 9, king, 10. So if he had that set that we want him to have on the turn, we're not too happy now because we uh, now are behind and our opponent has just made a full house. So of course, we continue to slow play and we check and our opponent bets 5400 into 7100 now in the absence of substantial information about this opponent can we actually fold a hand as strong as a set i don't know as you guys are listening to me talk through this hand as played can you fold would our opponent make this big bet with a hand we can beat, like pocket aces or ace-king. I don't know. It's pretty close. It's a pretty healthy bet by him, and I'm not sure what to make of it. I think it's very, very close, but I did call, and our opponent turns over the ace of spades, king of hearts, and we take down another healthy pot. Now, you may have noticed that in both of these hands, my opponent held ace-king, and I think in both hands... He played them poorly. Uh, Many times when you have ace-king and you miss the flop, it's fine to just go ahead and check. You don't have to always continuation bet. Ace-king, if it's good on the flop, is probably not going to collect any chips from a worse hand. Likewise, if it's not good, it's kind of unlikely that your opponent will fold a hand that can beat ace-king on most boards. It's like, you know, for example, if you end up playing ace-king against a big blind defender and you miss the flop and he checks to you, if you bet having whiffed the flop, you're pretty much going to get him to fold when ace-king is good and call when ace-king is not. So I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make a hard and fast rule like you should always or never do anything. But in, in both of these hand examples that we just covered, Our opponent misses the flop with ace-king, and in both spots, 
gets more committed to the pot than he really has to be. And then when he actually makes something in the second hand, he ends up going crazy and actually almost got me to fold my straight. <laughs> but I don't know. I guess I just remembered I'm playing a $15 tournament on ACR and it's just not the time to uh, make the hero fold. I love your thoughts on these hands. I thought they were both kind of interesting spots where I turned out to be facing ace-king. Also, be sure to let me know what your goals and what your hopes and dreams are for the new year. I'm sure a lot of you are just hoping to get back inside a casino, as am I. It would be great if they can get this coronavirus thing figured out by the summer and we can go back to Vegas like we used to and play some live poker together. I would love that. The hardest thing about 2020 for me was that we didn't have a traditional WSOP at the Rio. So let me know what's going on with you guys. The Twitter is at Clayton Comic. Definitely want to check out some of our hot new videos on TournamentPokerEdge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.